Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Someone always has to be the first. The first serial killer, the first assassin, the first spree killer. On March 12, 1897, the first known American serial sex murderer in the 20th century was born and would go on to take the lives of 22 women. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Earl Leonard Nelson was born on May 12, 1897 in San Francisco, California, to two parents who died before reaching the age of two. Sent to live with his grandmother, Earl was being raised alongside his younger aunt and uncle, who were both about eight and nine years older than him, in a deeply Pentecostal home with very little room for imperfection. From a pretty early age, Earl started experiencing a number of troubling behaviors. Filled with self-loathing and other, quote, morbid behaviors, Earl was expelled from school at the age of seven, and at the age of 10, was further altered when his bike collided with a passing streetcar, and he remained unconscious for six days. Later described as a psychotic prodigy, Earl started speaking to invisible people, experienced memory loss, compulsively quoted the Bible, had frequent headaches, spied on female relatives as they undressed, and began obsessively reading the Book of Revelations. Eventually, a teenaged Earl found his way to San Francisco's brothels and red light district where he contracted a venereal disease something I can't imagine he took well, considering he lost both of his parents to syphilis. He grew strong and stocky and eventually began impressing those around him by picking up heavy objects with his teeth. With his strength and his erratic behavior, Earl became a pretty successful criminal, even serving two years in San Quentin when he was a teenager after breaking into a cabin he believed was abandoned. He was paroled and almost immediately rearrested for petty larceny. This pattern continued, and in late 1917, Earl enlisted in the military but deserted after just six weeks. He did this a few more times with different branches of the military and all under different names before finally being committed to a mental hospital in 1918 after behaving, quote, oddly during one of his short services in the Navy. He was observed for a bit, and though the psychiatrist determined that he was not, quote, violent, homicidal, or destructive, did say that he suffered from paranoid delusions, occipital headaches, felt dizzy during their interactions, and heard voices that whispered to him to kill himself. While in the hospital, Earl was able to escape at least three times before the staff just decided to stop looking for him. He was formally discharged from the Navy in absentia in May of 1919, and the hospital put a note in his file indicating that he had improved. 
Now free from being a patient, Earl got a job as a janitor at another hospital under an assumed name and met an administrative worker named Mary Martin. Despite their very large age gap, Mary was 60 years old, the two began dating and were married that August, though it would be short-lived with Mary citing Earl, quote, made her life a living hell. He was jealous, made a number of odd sexual demands, still suffered from his religious delusions, and grew more and more violent as time went by. On May 19, 1921, he was caught trying to enter a residence and molest 12-year-old Mary Summer, whose screams alerted her older brother, was captured a few hours later, deemed unfit to stand trial, and sent back to Napa State Mental Hospital, this time as a patient. He escaped on two separate occasions before being discharged altogether in 1925. The following year, Earl took his crimes to the next level when he entered the boarding home of 60-year-old Clara Newman, posing as a potential tenant and strangled her to death for raping her body and stashing it in the vacant apartment. Realizing how successful his method was, Earl continued to target middle-aged landladies and gain entry by posing as a charming, mild-mannered Christian drifter looking for a room to rent. The next to fall victim to the sexual sadist was 63-year-old Laura Beale, who was strangled to death on March 2, 1926, with a silk cord that was pulled so tightly around her neck, it was found embedded in her skin. On June 26, he strangled and raped 63-year-old Lillian St. Mary, and two weeks later, did the same to 53-year-old Ollie Russell in her Santa Barbara boarding house. At this point, police realized that these cases were connected, but given the time period, it would take some more time and some more victims before they were led to Earl Nelson. On August 16th, 52-year-old Mary Nisbet of Oakland was found strangled to death and raped in the bathroom of a vacant apartment by her husband. And this time, a witness was able to give a first-hand account of what the killer looked like. According to their testimony, a, quote, smiling stranger was seen lurking outside of Mary's building the day of her murder. He was a dark, stocky man with long arms and large hands. Because of this description, the press started referring to the unknown killer as the Dark Strangler, the Gorilla Man, or the Gorilla Killer. Shortly after Mary's murder, Earl relocated to Portland, Oregon, where he simply picked up where he left off when, on October 19, 1926, he raped and murdered 35-year-old landlady, Beta Withers, and left her body to be found stuffed inside a steamer trunk by her teenage son. The next day, 59-year-old Virginia Grant was found murdered in her basement, and the day after that, Mabel Fluke disappeared only to have her body found several days later in the attic with her scarf tied tightly around her neck. Earl briefly returned to San Francisco, where he killed 56-year-old Anna Edmonds on November 18th, and the following day, attacked a 28-year-old pregnant woman who was showing her home to who she thought was a potential buyer. She was able to survive her attack and gave another detailed description of the Dark Strangler, including the terrifying detail that the well-spoken man kept pointing out details on the ceiling so she would look up and leave her throat exposed. Ten days later, he was back in Portland, where he murdered Blanche Myers and left behind some fingerprints on her iron bedpost and a frenzy of terrified female locals. 
One of these women ended up calling the police and claimed that a suspicious man was staying in her boarding house under the name Adrian Harris. That the day of Blanche's murder, Adrian told her and the other residents that he was leaving to take a train to Vancouver, saying he would not be returning, paid multiple days of rent in advance, and gifted one of the other boarders with a piece of jewelry. Jewelry that was later given to police who confirmed it belonged to a woman named Florence Monks, who had been murdered and raped inside of her Seattle home on November 23rd. Back on the run again, Earl made his way east through hitchhiking and train jumping, and on November 23rd, 1926, the body of his latest victim was found. Almira Berard, who had been recently discharged from a psychiatric institution, was found garroted in her Council Bluffs, Iowa home and was originally classified as a suicide until they found evidence of rape linking her to the trail of other women Earl left in his wake. Two days after Christmas, 23-year-old Bonnie Pace in Kansas City, Missouri, was found by her husband. On the 28th, Germania Harpin, 28, was found alongside her eight-month-old son, Robert, who had been strangled with a diaper. And further east, and on April 27, 1927, 53-year-old Mary McConnell of Philadelphia was found dead with several pieces of her jewelry missing. Pieces that Earl attempted to sell shortly thereafter. One month later, Earl was in Buffalo, New York, where he was renting a room from 53-year-old Jenny Randolph, using the name Charles Harrison. Three days after moving in, Jenny was found stuffed under a bed in her home. Almost immediately, people started to suspect that this Charles Harrison was really the Dark Strangler. But before they could do anything with that information, Earl was on the road again and heading to Detroit, Michigan. On June 1st, boarding house manager Fannie Mae and boarder Maureen Torthy were found dead by the building's owner. And two days later, 27-year-old Mary Cecilia Setsma was found dead in Chicago, strangled by an appliance cord. On June 8th, 1927, 14-year-old Lola Cowan of Winnipeg, Canada, went missing after leaving her home to sell artificial flowers door-to-door. And on the 10th, a local woman named Emily Patterson went missing only to be discovered by her husband while kneeling at their son's bedside to say their evening prayers. She, unlike the others, had been bludgeoned to death with a claw hammer, in addition to the normal strangulation and rape. Earl sold a number of Emily's items to local secondhand stores and jewelers who would later become integral to his identification as well as a local barber who gave an unknown man a shave and haircut on the 10th and found dried blood and scratch marks on his scalp. When asked about them, Earl simply told the barber not to touch them before leaving. On June 12, 1927, a citywide search of all the Winnipeg boarding houses took place. And while doing so, police entered the boarding house of August Hill, where Earl had recently been living. When they searched his room, they found the decaying body of young Lola Cowan, who, unlike Earl's other victims, had been mutilated in a way more reminiscent of Jack the Ripper. Regardless, they were pretty certain that this was their man, and a $1,500 reward was offered in exchange for information leading to his arrest. Finally, on June 16, 1927, a man named Virgil Wilson was arrested due to matching the description of the Dark Strangler. And after acting so calmly that they were certain they had the wrong man, escaped into the night and just so happened to catch a train 
filled with Winnipeg police. He was recaptured 12 hours later and was, with the help of witnesses from the pawn shops and the secondhand stores, identified as the man responsible for the string of brutal murders. All in all, Earl Nelson was responsible for at least 22 known murders, a number that wasn't surpassed until the discovery of Dean Quarles crimes in 1973. Despite originally admitting to his crimes, Earl claimed he was completely innocent and that the police had it all wrong. Regardless, his trials in Manitoba began on November 1st, 1927, and was testified against by his ex-wife and more than 60 other individuals from both Canada and the United States. After 40 minutes of deliberation, on November 5th, 1927, a jury found Earl Nelson guilty and sentenced him to death. He petitioned for clemency on the grounds of mental illness and personal history, with 20 moving affidavits in his favor, but the appeal was denied and his execution was scheduled. On November 13, 1928, Earl looked at those witnessing his execution and said, I forgive those who have wronged me. Before the noose tightened and he took his last breath as the first serial murderer in American history with a widespread national media presence in newspapers, national magazines, and a brand new medium, the radio. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 13th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Today's episode is sponsored by Fire Bee Honey. If you are looking for something unique and absolutely delicious, then look no further because I am about to tell you about my latest obsession, Fire Bee Honey. Fire Bee Honey is honey with a kick and the perfect ratio of sweet and heat. This honey is handcrafted in small badges to transform the flavor of raw honey without compromising its amazing health benefits, which is what makes it stand out from traditional hot sauces. They use the perfect blend of flavors so even non-spicy lovers can enjoy. Not only is it delicious, but there are no added sugars or nasty preservatives, so I feel really good about feeding it to my family. And if a kick isn't your thing, Firebee has flavors like cinnamon, vanilla, elderberry, and chocolate that would be perfect for baking or a fancy cup of tea, and other items like spicy honey beef jerky and spicy honey barbecue sauce. So if you are ready to spice up your meals and enjoy some flavor while still reaping the benefits of raw honey, then Fire Bee is the place for you. Get 15% off your purchase when you order two or more bottles by using the link www.firebeehoney.com slash morningcupofmurder. That's www.firebeehoney.com slash morningcupofmurder for 15% off the purchase of two or more bottles of Fire Bee Honey.